Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast Conversations at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me backslash voices. Good day and welcome to Voices in Leadership. I'm Alvin Tran, a Doctor of Science student in the Department of Nutrition and the President of Student Government. Prior to starting my doctoral studies here at the Harvard School of Public Health, I worked as a fellow in health policy reporting for Kaiser Health News. So today, I'm overjoyed to have the opportunity and the honor to be introducing Joanne Kennan, the healthcare editor of Politico. Ms. Kennan has covered health policy and politics for 20 years. As a Kaiser Family Foundation Media Fellow in 2006 to 2007, she wrote about end of life and palliative care. Though her focus is on health policy and politics, Joanne has covered everything from Haitian voodoo festivals to covering US presidential campaigns. And she adds that it is sometimes difficult for her to tell the difference between the two. She has worked for Reuters as a correspondent in New York, Florida and the Caribbean, and Washington DC where she covered health and domestic policy in Congress. She has been based in Washington since 1994 and ultimately joined Politico in September 2011. Joanne is a graduate of Harvard College where she majored in social studies and was also an editor for the Harvard Crimson. To date, her award-winning work has appeared in many publications, including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Slate, and Kaiser Health News. So before I turn the session over to Dr. Robert Blunden, who will be moderating today, please join me in welcoming Joanne Kennan to the Voices and Leadership Series here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you. As everybody knows, these are very special sessions that we're not talking about a broad public issue. We're really talking about people's evolution in the leadership roles and what they learn and take away from it, and most importantly, what you can use as you think about your own career and choices. Uh, so uh, uh, Joanne requires, if I'm in Politico, that I release information. She and I are long-term friends. So if that in any way influences my questions, you know that ahead of time. Uh, we've managed to watch from different venues uh, the experiences of American politics and healthcare uh, for many years, and it is a sobering and amusing experience. Uh, so the uh, thing, and uh, uh, Joanne could lead this wherever we want to, we sort of want to get some perspective of how the world looked to you when you sort of entered health policy journalism and what leaders look like uh, and what it looks like now and your experiences uh, uh, for that. She's going to tell you that uh, she didn't fully recognize she was going to be a leader and then she's going to hint that I suggest that she was a leader. She was a leader, so uh, this is just... I didn't say you were wrong. Yes, just uh, <laughs> for that. You'll see in a minute. It was one of the most obvious diagnoses I've ever made uh, for this, but her experiences I think can be very helpful for thinking about your own futures. Joanne, so, so why don't you take us into some of the evolution of the beginning through now? Well. For many years, I was a reporter and not an editor. And I, and you know, Bob and I were joking, but I, I mean, I think if you had asked me to describe myself, one of the words I would not have used would have been leader until Bob called me up and told me I was. And then it, and he's always right. And um, 
he's a friend and he began as a source and a mentor. So one of my pieces of advice is to use him too as a mentor for all of you. You're lucky to have him. He's taught me a lot of what I understand about the intersection of healthcare and politics. And when I began thinking of myself as a leader, and, I, and, I, and it was an interesting sort of bit of introspection, and it also, and I ended up having some very interesting conversations with um, women I went to college with who came through the sort of same era of changing expectations. And I sort of ended up identifying sort of three areas in which I do feel a certain amount of leadership, none of which my children would agree with. Um, I am an agenda setter. And I guess in retrospect, not just as an editor, but I probably was as a, as a reporter. I wrote about things that other people then wrote about after me or understood differently because of what I wrote. Um, so agenda setting uh, is one thing. I am an explainer, and I explain both in my own writing or helping young reporters find the words to explain. I do a lot of local, I do national media, but I do a lot of local radio, a lot of local radio, and I'm constantly explaining the same things over and over again, often to anchors who don't understand anything, but mm. that's another. Um, I also do explaining in a role, I do a lot of, I, I do some educational work with the Association of Healthcare Journalists, so I do explaining there. And I do a lot of mentoring, and I'm proud of mentoring. I've benefited from mentors like Bob. Um, I like it, I like working. Um, I like working with young journalists. I like um, men and women. I think um, it's fun to see them, you know, you can use cliches about your little chickies flying out of the nest or whatever. I guess chicks don't fly, but for whatever they are, you know. I, I, I love, I hate it when a good reporter gets hired by someone else, but, you know, I love it that they are able to take off and, and maybe have you know, they'll count their own obstacles, but maybe not the obstacles I encountered. So what has changed in your view about the world of journalism? Everything. Okay. I mean, when I... We need a few examples. Right. Um, <laughs> Big denominator. I think that obviously I mean, one of the things is speed. Um, I think um, it, it doesn't go back. It's not going to... I mean, there's... There's, a, I think, a resurgence at the same time. There's long-form journalism, and Politico now has a magazine. We have, you know, I envy the people who get to write for them. I don't have time. Um, we do live in a speedy spin message fast. There are great things about that immediacy and that freshness and that excitement about news. And then there are hazards because people get things wrong or, um, you know, and that's one thing I have to do is negotiate this pressure for speed and the pressure for context accuracy. Let's get this right. Let's think about this. And I have to do things fast. I have, given how much we do, which is an extraordinary amount of words in a day, as uh, anyone who's ever seen the, the behind the paywall side of what we do, we handle a lot of copy. And we're pretty accurate. Um, but I also want to to find a way of taking the time to what does this mean? What is the context? What do you need to understand? And I think that's my ultimate responsibility, not just to inform a mass of words, but a framework for you to understand those words. So in the framework for most of our lives, there were uh, health and science journalists, and over here there were people who did politics. You're now in the joint role. How is that? different as a journalist? Well, for me, I've gone back and forth. 
I mean, and I think that's what makes me a good health journalist or health policy journalist. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay at science. I've, I've done enough of it to muddle through when I have to, um, but I'm not a specialist in science. But the policy and politics are um, somewhere along the line, healthcare became politicized in a way that other things are not quite as political. And in a, other things are political for a moment in time. Healthcare became politicized many, many years ago, before I got into this. And it became a proxy for our fight about the role of government and the size of government. Because you can't, and when some people sort of want to be purist and say, just write about the policy, don't write about the politics. Well, good luck with that. You can't separate them, right? Where is policy set? Policy is set by government, right? You cannot take the politics out of healthcare. You can, you can write a wonky story for a certain audience, but you cannot take the policy out of, out of, out of politics. Now, I have covered I mean, some of my career is planned, and, and as yours will be, some of it's going to be serendipity. You're just going to find yourself somewhere. And sometimes you're not going to like it so much, and you'll have to sort of figure out how to get out of it. And other times, you're going to plunk into something that you didn't expect and end up saying, this is so cool. <laughs> I don't know how I got here, but I love it. Or I'm going to learn from it and then do something else. I didn't set out to be a health journalist. Um, I was at skip 10 years, but I, at that point I was in Miami. I had covered the Clinton campaign for reasons that aren't really clear to me. They then take Reuters, I was with Reuters, so that you had the person who knew the Clinton people the best and you send her back to Miami where it was useless. I wanted to go to Washington. Um, they had to wait for an opening in the bureau. Somebody on the health policy beat got pregnant and I became the health policy reporter and called Bob. Um, <laughs> And I ended up really like and didn't love it at the beginning. I was very confused by it in 94. I, miss, I was writing about the Clinton health care plan, and I missed the first six months of that, you know, and I didn't understand a lot of it. And I don't think my reporting initially was the most brilliant reporting in town. It was my job to sort of learn it. Um, and then I ended up really liking it, but because I had also had a political background, because I had covered Senate races, because I had covered presidential races, because I had actually covered overseas politics well early in my career. I had traveled. I'd worked in Latin America. Um, I mean, I think it gives me a um, ability to see both the sides, but I've also put time and effort into really learning the policy so that I'm, um, you can't challenge me. I mean, I can't have someone from one political party and call and say it's biased because I know my facts, right? I mean, I've had young Senate staffers try to fight with me and they give up. <laughs> um, I, I, you have to be, if I made a mistake, I'll come clean, I'll make a mistake. But if I assert something, it's factually based. So um, I'm pretty confident about my reporting because I put a lot of work into learning a topic that I initially did just sort of accidentally tumble into. So I mean, if it was the environment reporter who'd gotten pregnant, I'd be an environmental <laughs> reporter now. So. Well, right. that's a lot of planning <laughs> for the future. <laughs> uh, so uh, quickly, for the, those of us who might have spent part of their life writing the long pieces over six months. But I've done uh, that, too. Yeah. How do you respond to so many events in a 24-hour cycle? How do people organize? How do you think I, about that? I don't have 24 hours. <laughs> I mean, I have 24 minutes when I'm yeah. lucky. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I think what I, I mean, in Politico, I'm doing two jobs at once. I am writing, for those of you who are, for, um, at Politico, we have Politico Pro, which are these policy sections, and they're for a professional audience. They are paid for, it's, they're not free. It's a very interesting model for journalism because we make money that lets a lot of our journalism be free. And it, it, we're not behind a paywall. You can all go to the Politico website and not have to pay for it. You don't, you're not limited to 10 stories. You don't have to keep switching devices to stay under your account. It's free, and they're committed to keeping it free. Um, so I'm writing these, these um, you know, sort of professional, sometimes just little bursts of news, which we call white voice, just like this is what's going on. It's almost like live blogging the news, stepping back, writing more enterprisey, thoughtful things. There are stories we spend days and sometimes weeks on, as well as things that we spend you know, a minute and a half on. Um, and we do try to step back. We do try to stay ahead of the curve. We try what I call seeing around corners, which is a skill you should all acquire. You know, not what is in front of you, what, what, what is around the corner, what's about to hit you. Think about that. So, um, but then I have to take this and go through this, you know, ever-changing thing that is Politico and take the policy and make it intelligible to the Politico side of things. And when I came, Pro was only a few months old. And the newsroom, it was one physical newsroom, but they were really very, very separate. And over the past few years, um, I think I went from seeing a wall to that you had to sort of figure out how to get over, under, or through to sort of I've described it in my newsroom as um, a membrane <laughs> that was easier to pass through. And now we are much more one newsroom. And I, it isn't necessarily easy to have you know, one set of people thinking about policy and one set of people thinking about politics, um, but that's what I, you know, that's what I just have to do and have learned how to do. And, you know, sometimes if I'm really looking at something in a very policy way, a colleague on the, who's more political can help me figure out how do we do this for that audience. Um, sometimes I intuitively know it. I mean, the, the various parts of the newsroom can be difficult and they can also be fun for all of you with, you know, to, to work with a few different people who have different perspectives and come up with a really good take on something can be really rewarding. So do you recruit one staff that is much more policy-oriented or one political or are they pretty much generalists? And I look for... Um, I mean, I have a mix of skills. I do prefer to have some health policy because not everybody does have it and the learning curve is steep. Um, so my preference is for people to have had some health policy experience, reporting experience in health policy. Um, we have had exceptions to that who've learned on the job, who've had more political, but they have to be interested and want to do it and I have to have, I have to be convinced of that. I mean, if you don't like health policy, you wouldn't really be happy working for me at Pro. Right. Uh, so uh, tell me about the audience for Politico. It's got to look different than the more standard media group. Are they well, all like me audiences. that is addicted every single five minutes to find out what's happening politically? Or are they people who are looking from different backgrounds? What's uh, the mix that you think that are... We, I have two audiences because yeah. I have these two different jobs. So um, the pro audience is people like yourselves or um, 
people in the policy world, people in the lobbying world, people in the industry, people on the Hill, people in state legislatures. That's the pro audience. There are just, you know, some people in the nonprofit world, but it's people who can afford us. Um, Maine Politico is people who, um, it started out as, you know, the joke was it was the ESPN for politics. I think it is a richer, more diverse, and more interesting site now. We have 14 policy teams, and I have been involved in shaping several of those. And um, we have an e-health, a digital health. We have three reporters covering that exclusively because we sort of were the first to realize this is a huge piece of healthcare that no one is talking about. And we have three people now writing about mobile health, digital health, e-health, so that when the Texas hospitals started talking about, you know, the EHR did it, we had expertise who came back and said, no, it didn't. <laughs> um, so um, you can, you know, I've had stories that a few years ago no one would have found or expected to find in Politico, and now we are a go-to source. So, I mean, I've had a story about hospice pattern pay rates or whatever it was that was like the top, one of the top four or five stories on Politico for like a whole week, and that certainly would not have happened a few years ago. So <coughs> we are becoming more things to more people. I mean, I, th I think one of the fun things about working there is I am in a place that cares about policy, that has invested in policy. Starting Pro was risky, and it wasn't cheap. I mean, we started a whole new newsroom at a time when you know, everybody else was firing people. We jumped in to this very deep and varied policy pool that keeps growing. There were three teams, and now four, the 14th is about to start. Um, so there's a place where I think in some ways we have reinvigorated policy in Washington, policy journalism in Washington. Once we started covering e-health, you know, look at the Kaiser Daily Health Summary, which many of you read. I mean, there's a lot of e-health in there now. There's regulatory issues, there's business issues, there's licensing issues, there's state issues, there's Medicare payment issues. It's a really rich, important, potentially, you know, game-changing part of health. We put that on the map, now we have competition. Um, so being in a place where policy is valued and respected, where I have a voice, is really rewarding. And, you know, politics is still the lifeblood of Washington and the lifeblood of much of American journalism. So I'm at that sweet spot where they intersect. You know, some stories that are very of interest to a policy world, I wouldn't even try to pitch them over to Free Politico, to Main Politico. You know, my pros are going to love this. There's no way I could even explain it to my editor. I'll just say, trust me, our people like it. You can not worry about it. But I know not to necessarily try to say, this should be the top story on Politico, because they would look at me like I'm nuts, which they do anyway sometimes. <laughs> uh, so why don't we take a couple questions uh, from our community, and then we'll go back to somewhere that I have. Hi. If you don't mind, we did have a question come in from Twitter. So Sarah Sabshin asks, what are public health officials and government leaders doing wrong in communicating health policy issues, and how can they improve? Well, I think that is a young woman, if I remember correctly, that I mentored along the way. <laughs> um, I didn't have a job open for her at the time. I mean, that's a very broad question. I think, I mean, what are the health policy issues? Well, there's, I think it can be really frustrating when you're saying things right and it can't get through a, a sound barrier, and that sound barrier is different in different ways. Um, if you're talking about the Affordable Care Act, the sound barrier 
to get things through is a political sound barrier, right? There is confusion, partly because the law is big and confusing. There is confusion because there are two sets of people saying different things and getting, let's say, something that's not ideological, a fact. There are subsidies available. <laughs> that didn't get through, right? People who are of, who were eligible for subsidies had absolutely no idea they could get a subsidy. They would hear, it's expensive, you can't afford it, it's going to drive us all broke, blah, 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 blah. They didn't hear, it's, we can help you pay for this. So, so sometimes the inability to communicate is how do you communicate in a world that is a noisy world. Sometimes, I mean, I think with the Ebola communication, I think that you know, it has hit some kind of a psychic fear that has spread. I mean, we all have phobias. This one is a big one for a lot of people. Why are we afraid of Ebola, but we're not afraid of Marburg virus? I think it has something to do with what we see in these movies. And also, the news out of Africa is so horrifying, right? So how do you, um, you, there's a disconnect, too, because some of the polls are showing that people actually do know it's not airborne and that it's not as easy to catch, and they, they're still worried about getting it. So, and, and that is, um, I think we're not a particularly scientifically literate society. And I also think that sometimes fear gets in our way of being able to hear things. So um, that is two things that come to mind. Okay. Is there anything a public official could do to be more effective in that world? Well, that's two. There's a public health world and there's a uh, ACA world. They're not identical. Um, I think I've been struck by how poorly the pro, the advocacy world has been in getting out success stories. Um, it's not my job to do that for them. Um, but if you even look in social media or anywhere, you don't see as many success stories. I mean, I got an email from every single person in America whose plan was canceled. You know, I didn't get that from people who were having good experiences. And I think the American public is not hearing a lot of success stories. So there, there are some political reasons. They got afraid to talk about it, which you know, I'm not sure whatever focus group told them that was necessarily, you know, you're the political scientist. You, <laughs> you probably have some opinions on why they became afraid to talk about what at one point was their greatest domestic achievement. It became toxic. But they haven't been able to find ways of, I mean, one of my jobs is to tell the same story in a fresh and exciting way time after time after time. And I think that's one reason Bob and I have had this professional relationship is, um, He's helped me do that, but I, I've been good at retelling the things. I've told this story many, many times over the years, and I've come up with different ways of coming at it. Because sometimes to get your message across, you've got to do it in a different way. You've got to come up with a whole different way of telling the same old story. One of the last stories I did before I, I left Reuters, it was a story I really, it's you know, a number of years now, but I loved it, was, I, and you'll love it, because here's a story about, you know, American healthcare is broken, we need reform, blah, 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 blah. You've all heard it. How can I tell this differently? And what was like my parting story before I left? I wrote about how every young person in America wanted to go into public health, <laughs> that public health schools were, you know, brimming, that the two idealistic things were public health here or global health. And I wrote a story about America's, the next generation of American healthcare problems and how we, you know, there might be too many of you. You didn't get it, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I wrote a story about looking, 
you know, this, this generation has grown up aware of the challenges of the system and wanted to fix it. And that was a really fun story to write, and at that point, no one else had written it. Other questions? Hi, I'm uh, Leo Brown, a master's student in the Social and Behavioral Science Department here at HSBH. And I was wondering if you could comment on the, um, just to take for example, the Ebola media coverage. And, and you mentioned that sometimes the government has trouble communicating important health information. But I was wondering if you could also comment on um, the media's role in this, criticism that's been leveraged against the media, and how to balance the importance of generating um, revenue, clicks, versus the nobler cause of um, advancing public health through media? I think there's a difference between what you're seeing on TV and what you're reading. I think there's been a big division between print and, um, and electronic media and cable. I think um, I can't even watch cable half the time. I just turn it off. I just can't even stand it. <laughs> um, I, th I think a lot of the print reporting is not flawless, but pretty good in an unfolding crisis. Um, we wrote a story before the first case. We wrote a story about 10, we sat around the newsroom, more and more um, interest in Africa. Someone said, what if it comes here? I said, it will. And we wrote a story about hospital preparation, which was probably a little bit too confident at that point, but we did have the two sentences that I would have, nobody tried to cut out, but I would have had a large fit if anyone did try to cut. And those two really important sentences were, a, a drill isn't real life, and B, there's no margin for error, okay? And as we saw, the drills left something to be desired, and the margin of error, you know, we're seeing what happened. Um, and then we, we actually, so maybe some of you, some, there may be some people who don't like political in the room, so we actually, our first story when the first case was diagnosed was a don't panic story, as opposed to everybody panic. Um, we wrote a don't panic story. We wrote a factual story about what was going on with the first case, and we wrote a second story saying the challenge is twofold, contain the virus and contain the panic. And we wrote that the first night. So has every word of every story, would I have written that first story a little differently now? You know, but we, don't, we also don't know what would have happened at a different hospital? I mean, Bob and I were talking about that. Um, the, the TV coverage speaks for itself. I mean, you've, and you've had politicians, you know, go on and say they don't believe the CDC or, you know, yes, we need to panic. The, I've done a lot of local, I did a lot of local radio that first week, partly because I am good at explaining it. And the phrase I used is, I used here too, is the difference between concern and panic. It is something to be concerned about. I mean, you're all experts. You know more about Ebola as a virus than I do. You know more about how to contain it than I do, or some of you at least. I hope you know. Um, it is, yes, it is something to be concerned about. And, we, and if the Dallas, the circles get closed without further infection, which will be partly luck because the people in that apartment did get exposed, it's a mixture of good luck and public health. If we don't have more cases, if we have one more case, if it's contained, the threat through from Africa, it will continue to exist as long as there are cases in Africa. So, um, you know, some of the cable stuff has been, you know, it doesn't help. It doesn't help when you have a nurses union talking about some legitimate safety concerns about, you know, I don't know exactly what happened in that hospital. None of you do either. 
But then they sort of make this case for what went wrong and what the nurses needed and why they don't have it and what the skills and, and training they need. And then they put somebody on the air on their press conference saying, you know, it's actually airborne. Well, that didn't help me. Uh, that did not win. Everything that I thought I was beginning to believe about their account, I then questioned. These people, there was a credibility issue um, when they put somebody on and say, it's airborne, or we think it's airborne, or it could mutate. I mean, you know, I could sprout wings, but I got that on one of your videos. <laughs> um, something like that. Must have been something else. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the cable, I don't know how you stop cable news. There's an audience for it. I don't watch it, except when I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, I, had, uh, I, had I think we need a the mic. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, Miranda Mancusi. I'm here on staff at the School of Public Health. Um, my question for you is about um, how you tapped into this new um, uh, audience for policy. I mean, you've re-energized a policy audience, and I'm wondering, how did you know that there were people, more people out there interested in policy, and what did you do to tap into that? Well, the decision of Politico's decision to build a policy decision, they hired me. They, I didn't come up with the idea. I have helped expand and come up with ideas for where to go with it, such as the e-health idea. The initial idea that Politico should do a policy predated me. Um, joining, I was hired to a few months into it, four or five months into it. It's three and a half years now. Um, so I would credit my former boss, who's now left Politico, it was his idea, and he talked them into trying it at a point when other policy publications were either running into financial trouble, going broke, or having their audience shrink. I mean, CQ used to be the Bible, and it's not. Our audience is growing. Our audience is growing. And we can, I think, because there, I mean, it's not just us. There are other policy organizations, and some of them are doing it in different ways, like, you know, Vokes. Um, Bloomberg now has these sort of policy explainers, um, you know, their blogs. I think there is a hunger. I mean, it's not that everybody who's reading the policy has an MPH or even has a clue. You read the, you know, you read the, I, I sometimes read the comments on stories only to figure out how people are perceiving it and some of the, um, conspiracy theory subculture that I need to know that there are people in this country who really do believe that Obama brought Obama that Obama brought Ebola into the United States as a chemical weapon. I'm not saying it's a widespread belief, but there, you know, that you can find things like that if you read the online commentators, and you can also find plenty of online commentators telling that guy to shut up. So, so it's not that everybody reading it understands everything they read. Um, for me, I don't think I created the policy, but I think I've fed it, I hope that I have fed it constructively. I hope that occasionally I've made it fun to read. I hope that I've made it clear for people who are coming to political for politics, but I catch their eye on an interesting policy story. Um, because so many of my reporters were, um, I mean, I do do some writing myself when I have time, not as much as I'd like. I try, when I have a chance to write, I say, what, what is my voice with 20 more years' experience than most of my staff? Um, what can I add? Um, it can be a struggle to find time to do that. We wrote a story. Um, I got three hours sleep that night. But we wrote a story, me and the e-health editor, actually. At the beginning of the Ebola crisis, we 
which is a word we has the crisis in Dallas, um, when there seemed to be a lot of miscommunication in that hospital before the two nurses, after the first diagnosis before the two nurses, when the emphasis was on how did they miss this. We jumped off and said, you know, this happens in hospital. We went back to the IOM studies from 1999 and 2000 or 2001, and we said this is a problem that's been identified and it's not solved. It happens over and over and over and over again. Anyone who's had a relative in the hospital knows it's a problem. In this case, it was not just a tragedy for an individual and a family, but it exposed a community and it created a national crisis. So we tried to take something that people were talking about and listening to and use that as not necessarily a teachable moment, but a writable moment to take two of us who had a lot of expertise, who had this 15 years of knowledge about patient safety and write a story. Him with the um, more expertise on the electronic part and me with just sort of my background in patient safety and wrote, you know, hey, <laughs> this happens all the time and it shouldn't. Hi, I'm Andrea Christopher. My name is Andrea Christopher, and I'm a primary care physician and an MPH student. Um, and my, I'm a research fellow at the med school looking at disparities in access to care. And um, one thing you alluded to before was um, that I was going to ask you to expound on was the role of, um, when you were talking about the different forms of journal journalism, looking at the role of the narrative. And I wonder if you can also speak to, for those of us who spend our time in research and you know in clinical practice, um, what are tips or, or tools or skills you might um, advise us on about how to put out our own narrative in a meaningful way. Right. Um, by your own narrative, you mean you as a, as a physician or the narrative of your patients or the intersection? I think both. Okay. Uh, I'm not currently in a job that does a lot of narrative journalism. It's not something that Politico does much of. I have written um, some of the pieces I'm most proud of are narrative in the past. I, I wrote maybe my favorite piece ever was a magazine piece I wrote, an award-winning magazine piece I wrote, about the suicide of a senator's son and how it activated him politically and how his wife, who had been a, a very traditional behind-the-scenes stay-at-home mom, became, and she's very shy, and how it activated her as a mental health activist. And they actually ended up passing legislation for teen suicide. Um, so. I think there's power of narrative. I miss that about my current job. It's not what I'm doing right now. I hope that at some point I will do it again. The power of narrative is most powerful when you have narrative and information. For me to have written just a sob story about a young man's death might have made you cry, but it would have not have made you understand mental health. It would have not made you understand um, where there are policy tools. Policy can't fix mental health, but what can Congress do that there was a particular vulnerability on campuses um, where there are, so I, I managed to weave policy knowledge and a really powerful story in which I was very lucky that the family shared with me. I do not know whether they would have shared had the senator already known me. Um, I actually sent the senator's wife, it's Senator Gordon Smith, he's a former senator now, I sent his wife a story I had written for a parenting magazine because I wanted her to know that I also had a human touch, that I wasn't just a congressional healthcare reporter. Um, so I believe that, that when you can intersect policy and narrative, you have an incredibly powerful tool. Um, and I think in some ways, 
it comes in and out of vogue journalistically. I think it's a little bit out now, but it'll never go away. Um, in terms of your own narratives, I mean, I think if, if you're talking about, are you trying to talk about you know, a, a writing audience, a physician author, which is, there are many of them now, and they write some fantastic stuff. Um, I, I think if you want to write, you should start with whatever vehicle is closest to you. Um, whether it's a local paper or your hometown paper or um, using your own Facebook page wisely and constructively to start testing what gets a response, what people send around, what people, um, what reverberates, what, what touches buttons in a good way, touches people's brain buttons or heart buttons, um, not their flag-waving buttons necessarily. Um, and um, you know, in social media, you can also use to appropriately to to draw attention. But also, there is an audience for medical writing. I mean, it's you know, you can. There are places that'll do it. I mean, we don't take it right now, but you can find you can find outlets. I, I start small and build up. I feel the presence of another hand, but I can't see it. <laughs> I'm Donna Zwas. I'm a uh, cardiologist and uh, an MPH student in uh, social and behavioral science. Um, all of us are aware of the intersection of politics and uh, reporting, as you described on you know in more extreme situations on cable uh, network. But all of us are political creatures, and I was wondering if you could speak about the. Uh, impact of underlying political agendas in the newsroom and how that impacts the discussion and the decisions that are made. I don't know the political views of most of my editors. We don't talk about personal politics in our newsroom. I know that there are a variety of views in our newsroom. Um, I, I can guess. I believe that of my six reporters, one of whom is currently on maternity leave at an inconvenient time, um, I, I can guess what, I, having known them all for some time, I can guess about their politics. I can guess a little bit about by things that they have mentioned to me, or you know, in one case, what their husband does for a living. Two cases, one husband, one husband-to-be. Um, but it is not, um, I don't feel political pressure um, to, and I have never felt political pressure in a newsroom to toe a certain line. I have felt skepticism. I, I think that during, you know, Bob asked me to think about difficult times. Why, when has leadership been challenging? I think that during, um, I'll give you a, back, a brief backstory. We had a meeting before the Supreme Court case in 2012, June 2012. We had a meeting in April or May, and we had the story list, right? And what, what could we get ready in advance? And what are the various permutations? And what, you know, this, that? Because you can't, you have to have some, you don't have the story totally ready to go, but you have to have something already pre-written that you can then, you, you need to make it accurate and timely, but you have to have some of it just intellectually. You need to think it through and get it on paper. Well, it's not paper anymore, but you need to get it written down. And we had a list of, I don't remember how many, a lot of stories. And I said, well, what if the Supreme Court upheld it? And they looked at me, and I had only been there a few months, and, and it was main Politico, not pro-editors, mostly in the room, and I got shouted down. I mean, I, I got ignored. And I said, someone said, that can't happen. 
And I said, I do not think it is the most likely scenario, but I don't think we, you know, I said, I think there's probably a 10 or 15% chance it will happen. In fact, in my own brain, I probably thought there was a 20 or 25% chance. Um, what, what I said in that rather <laughs> not friendly room was 10 to 15, but I did say, I think we need something ready. And they ignored me. And the, the senior editor, who did not know me well, because at that point the policy and politics side were more separate than they are now, the Supreme Court verdict came out. He looked at me. He went like this, and he said, okay, Joanne, what do I do now? <laughs> and I had thought about it, and I knew, you know, we had stuff we could, I mean, I, like everybody else, I thought the mandate, I mean, the, my most likely scenario, I thought the mandate would be struck. But um, I thought that was most likely. I thought upholding was second most likely. I thought striking the whole thing was least likely, and nobody on the planet knew about that Medicaid thing. I mean, none of us were ready for that. Um, so the next, and I, I feel free talking about this because the two editors involved talked about it themselves in public and uh, at a web at an event we had that was broadcast, and they said the moral of the story is listen to Joanne. Well, that lasted like a week, <laughs> and then comes you know, the failure of the website last year. That was a very difficult time for me, not because, well, October we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if it could be fixed, if it could be made right. We didn't know. I began seeing signs that it was going to be fixed. I wasn't sure, but I began seeing signals that this could work. I did not think it was going to be a raving, spectacular success that was going to quell criticism, but I began to see a muddle through scenario. And as I talked in the newsroom to editors about a muddle-through scenario, they had forgotten that, listened to Joanne. Thing. But it wasn't politics. It wasn't a bunch of people saying, we hate Obama, we hate Obamacare, we're not going to write anything good. It was people who just couldn't see how something that messy could work. And I knew I had looked at the actual month-to-month -month enrollment patterns from Massachusetts. That's what I mean by doing your homework and knowing your stuff. I knew about the Medicare Part D enrollment patterns, which are not identical, but it gives you some, between Massachusetts and, and Medicare, you know something about how people behave, and you know something about patterns. And um, gradually, I mean, again, gradually it began to get better. The, People were less skeptical, but it wasn't their politics saying you can't write something good. It was like their brain saying, "I don't see how this could possibly." What do you mean it might muddle through? And um, at the end, when things did start getting better, somebody sent another one of those. Let's listen. Joanne was right again, and I wanted I want everybody to have it tattooed, but there, no such <laughs> luck. I'll, I will have other fights. I'm sure I will have some. Um, I don't mean fights in a. Um, hostile fight, but there will be times when people won't understand what I'm seeing because their job is to specialize in something else. I may not always see what they are seeing. In, in, um, and Politico's going through a lot of changes. It, it makes it fun to work there. I mean, it's, if you looked at Politico eight years ago and you look to Politico now, it's really different. They think very seriously about where is journalism going? Where is policy journalism going? Where is political journalism going? What is our place in a really noisy world? Know, what is our value added? Why are people going to come to us? Right? I don't have 20 reporters in Dallas. So if I'm going to write an Ebola story, I need to tell you something you can't get every place else. So, I mean, we'll give you the basic news because we want, if you come to our website, we don't want to not find anything. But we want to say something different. So it, it's not so much politics in my experience as it is just 
educating your colleagues or your superiors. I know you're there somewhere. All right, it's Bob. Uh, so a lot of our community views themselves uh, being involved with public service and health in Washington or in the national capital. Uh, so in terms of advice for how they think about their own roles in media, uh, in between being the leader but playing a much more prominent role, what would you give them in terms of thinking about what they should do, how they should gain experiences, hopefully positively, but dealing with fast-paced issues with the Washington media? I th well, I think there are a few different pieces to that. I mean, I, I think that if you're not comfortable speaking in public, and if you're not, don't have experience with the press, I would be more comfortable from my first couple of times doing print than getting on live TV. Um, it took me a long time to get comfortable going on live TV, and I got comfortable first on local before I did national. But I think doing um, print, it's a sl somewhat slower. They're going to think a little bit more. If you realize that you didn't make something clear, you can send a follow-up email, because as you think, of, you can't tell a reporter, you can't change your quotes, you can't redo it, but you can say, in, in case I wasn't totally clear about that, this is what I was trying to say. Um, so I would think that that's a, a way to get started for those of you who want to have your voices out there. Um, and there are other ways to be leaders without being in the media. Um, I think using social media but using it smartly is a tool that is probably you intuitively, you've grown up with it, you intuitively know more about it than I do. So, but you can use it. Remember, I mean, it sort of should be obvious, but you know, don't ever tweet anything that's going to bother you the next morning. Think about it before you, you know, before you hit the send button. Um, it's there forever. I mean, I have teenagers. I tell them that all the time. Um, and I think also <coughs> being really open to, like I said, so much of life is serendipity. You're all elite. You're at Harvard Public School of Public Health. You all made it here. You will all have doors open for you. The door that opens may not be the door that you expect. And you should, um, you should be open to having that be the right door, even if you didn't realize it. And if it turns out it's the wrong place, you move. I mean, I've changed. I've done more changing in the last 10 years than I did in the first 20. And I'm much more comfortable if something doesn't work out, I'm going to go do something else. I did not feel that way for a long time before Bob told me I was a leader. <laughs> The, uh, so the parallel of this, uh, many of our students will find themselves for the first time in a more political environment they go to Washington. Is there advice for people who are really policy-oriented, passionately caring about their issues, to being more effective in, in an environment know where politics? You know, know your stuff. There's, a, there's a, a cliche in the newsroom about being bulletproof, and it doesn't mean physically bulletproof. It means intellectually bulletproof. If you know your stuff, it's harder to attack you. Be, um, that doesn't mean you should be afraid to speak out without having researched something for eight years. But if you have knowledge that you can be confident in, that's your most valuable tool. Um, you are in, we are in an extremely politicized era. I mean, it's a frighteningly politicized era. I've worked in, I've worked in DC since 1994 and I've never seen it this bad. It is deeply fragmented, and there's deep distrust. Staff, 
that used to sort of socialize and get along might not even really speak to each other. I mean, that's not true of every congressional committee. It's not that any, nobody has, no Demo I mean, sometimes Democrats and Republicans even marry each other. But basically, you're in a, po you're in a polarized, a highly polarized environment that I don't, you know, I don't think, Bob, you've yeah, ever seen right, it no. since, you know, Reconstruction or something? I'm not saying you were around that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I was a year or two later, I promise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really alarming. Um, I think that, that there are two things that I see, I wouldn't say healing, that's way too strong or whatever, but I do see a little bit of bipartisanship. Um, I think basically the response to ISIS has been, considering how dysfunctional and political everything is, there is some bipartisanship there. And even Ebola, there's two levels. There's the blame game on cable, but the funding has gone through. And the, the policy has, there wasn't a lot of grandstanding about what do we need to do. And some of the questions that Republicans did ask before letting all the money, they approved the money but didn't let it all go out the door immediately, which they don't need it all immediately. Um, I think there were legitimate questions when they wanted the Pentagon to come and say, how are you going to protect? kind of training, what kind of protection, how do we know, have you thought it through? We don't want these American military personnel to go and come back sick. Um, I thought that was a legitimate oversight question. So you've got the cable politicization of Ebola, but you've got a policy, a lot more bipartisanship on two incredibly important crises. ISIS is a crisis, not my expertise, but I think we all know it's a crisis, and Ebola, which is um, a, certainly a crisis in Africa and a concern here. And I do see a little bit of getting above the politics, but I don't see it widely. I, I think next year will be really interesting, though, because if the Republicans win the Senate, and they probably will, we know, you know, I'm not a, a guesser, but the signs are that it's likely, they still can't repeal Obamacare, right? First of all, Obama would never sign it, and secondly, they're not going to really have enough votes. Most things need 60. They'll be able to damage parts of it. They'll be able to dismantle bits and pieces. But they can't get rid of the whole thing, despite talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. How do they get out of that? I think how and when you find some kind of consensus that lets them save face and say, we fix this or we fix that. Um, you know, How much are they going to stay on that repeal pledge going into 2016? It's hard for them to, to reel it in. But the reality is they can't repeal it. And I think many of them know that in their hearts, or if they don't know in their hearts, their staffers do. Uh, let me sort of close with one more question for you, which is sort of a, a personal issue that uh, people sort of think about all the time. Can you make your kind of leadership role work with families and life and everything else? Uh, everybody thinking about the rest of their life, how does she juggle this? How does this get together? Is it really possible when you're recruiting people to say to them, we can make your life work in these kinds of environments? Well, if you have me as a boss, I do try yeah. to make my life, my staff's lives work. And we work hard and we have demanding hours and I do try. Um, in terms of my own life and somewhat, sometimes it's worked, I, I have two kids. I have a couple of other sort of semi-step things floating around. I have like beyond blended. It's one of my friends said it's a Cuisinarded family. Um, <laughs> I had a, I, I, I worked part time for a lot of years. I think I have an energy level that a lot of people did not realize I was working part time. <laughs> um, I did work part time. I did partly because I had a kid who had some needs that needed me to address, and partly because I actually loved being with my kids. 
Um, they're really fun. <laughs> um, and I also was a caregiver, not to the extent my mother was, but I was an involved part of the, my father's end of life, and I would not have given up a minute of the hardest thing I have ever done. Um, I was lucky, I think, in some ways, in that um, I backpedaled my career and I came back stronger. And some of that is luck. Some of it was sort of who I became in midlife. Um, Bob and I have a mutual friend who says I'm the most resilient person he knows. I think um, resiliency is a good thing. <laughs> I'm not quite sure when I became resilient, but somewhere along the line I did. Um, I think you should never, I mean, you might have to do sequential things sequentially. I did backpedal. I did go through a point when my career was less uh, visible. Where, and you always have to have something, for if those of you who choose or have kids, you always have to find time for what teaches them something. The most busy part of my job the last few years, I was still the room mother, and I ran the social action committee at my, my younger child's school. And I took care of my dad. So if I found time to make sandwiches for the homeless, I never found time to clean the house, <laughs> but I found time to teach my child, we are going to find time to do this. We are going to go work in the shelter. We are going to visit this old people's home. Not just me, but I'm going to organize it for your school. That my children saw me going to New Jersey to be with my dad and taking them when appropriate. They're old, they're old. The older one is, was there a lot. And, and my child, um, my younger kid came with me too. So I, I can't say that life, work-life balance has been easy every day. I can't say I have always had supportive bosses because I have not. I can't say that my life would have been different if I, I mean, maybe I would have a bigger job or make more money or a cleaner house if I had, <laughs> um, if I hadn't made certain choices. Overall, you know, I have um, an interesting career. I've done a lot of really fun things. I've seldom been bored. I was, you know, the point in my life I was bored and you know I changed it. Um, and a um, really two kids and a husband and a mom and sisters and nieces and nephews and I even cook. <laughs> uh, so in closing, uh, there are a lot of predictions I made that I never mentioned, but one about Giant being an incredible leader uh, was very, very easy to see. Uh, for your own benefit, sometimes people don't see the obvious about themselves. And as you can see today, the incredible breadth of uh, grasping the politics, the policy, the journalism, and from a very human perspective. And that's part of the purpose of this uh, series. I was always bothered at your stage that it was always very ethereal. People talked about policy as if human beings were not involved, their lives, their choices. And we are very, very grateful for your sharing this today. And this is just the beginning for her. Uh, thank everyone for coming and thank very much for Joanne and we are going to have uh, former Secretary Sebelius uh, uh, join us and hopefully we will get uh, some comments from her that you can never make when you're in public life. You have to read what Joanne says that she might have really thought at the time. Thank everyone and thank Joanne again for it was a terrific session. This has been a production of Voices in Leadership at Harvard School of Public Health. 
You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.